My son Drew was a preschooler, age four or five or so. I coached his t-ball teams. Now, now coaching children at that age is sort of like herding cats. Uh, what you do in that moment is the idea is just make sure nobody gets hurt, everybody has a little fun, learns a little about the game, and gets a popsicle from the cooler at the end of the day. Uh, and so as you work at that, it didn't really matter who wins or lost. We kept time more than we kept score. It was great. When you got a little older, he was uh, six or seven, maybe there was the next level up was coach pitch league. Now here the kids are a little older, a little stronger, understand a little more about the game, and we definitely kept score. Except that here we had one very special rule in this league, and that was because of this. Sometimes there were teams that had kids who were more athletically naturally than the other kids, and so they could, they could get out easier, they could score runs easier, hit the ball easier. And so, so the idea was this, at the end of the third inning, if one team was 10 runs or more ahead of the other team, uh, they, would, they would call it the game was over. And they called that the mercy rule. Now, now, why do we have a mercy rule? Well, it was to teach sportsmanship. It was okay to be a better player, okay to win the game, but you didn't want to do it at the expense of embarrassing or shaming your friends. We were trying to build into our children compassion for, for other people. And that was to remind the children and the coaches and the parents that was most important here wasn't what was going on on the field, but who the children were becoming, how they were going to live their lives. Now, you know, I know that growing up is a lot about becoming a certain kind of someone. You know, they're shaped by athletics or academics or your involvement with the arts. Maybe shaped by your family traditions or by some pain life, by a particularly important person, a teacher, a coach, a mentor. Everybody is becoming a someone. Now, followers or disciples of Jesus are to be becoming more and more like Jesus. And what we become like Jesus is by embracing the things that Jesus says are the most important. And all this year, we've been saying that Jesus says that a priority of our life is the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God, the idea that there is a sphere in which God rules as king and sovereign over all things. That there is a people who gladly submit to his authority as king and begin to live out his priorities or his his agenda or purpose, which is to bring God glory by bringing dead sinners to life and then making all things good and beautiful and right and true the way God intended through the death and resurrection and reign of his son, Jesus. And so when you think about life that way, then we know that those who are Christians who are the followers of Christ are God's kingdom people, which means that we're going to have different uh, behaviors. We're going to do things differently and we're going to become a different kind of people from the world. Now in the Sermon on the Mount, which we're going to be in Matthew 5 today, if you go ahead and turn your copy of God's Word to Matthew chapter 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Jesus is describing both the behavior, what we do, and the character, who we are, what we become of kingdom people. And the first few statements in the Sermon on the Mount we call the Beatitudes. We're looking at those under the, the promises of the kingdom for the last several weeks. Now the promises that begin, these Beatitudes, are not assignments to do. 
uh, nor are they mere inspirational slogans to put on the sides of coffee cups. Now, the Beatitudes are descriptions of the kinds of people Jesus means us to be as we make our way through the world. We are his ambassadors. We're representing a heavenly kingdom living in this kingdom. So it's describing that. But at the same time, they are declarations of God's favor and God's intent to support that, and that kind of living, that, that God's favor and God's intent and God's good will surround us as we lean fully into what the king intends. Now, when you read the Beatitudes, what you find is that they are structured kind of loosely like the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments, the first four, are vertical towards God. Or the gods before me, no idols, and the like. The last six are horizontal, dealing with other people, how they relate. Honor your father and mother, don't covet, don't murder, those kinds of things. There are eight Beatitudes, and those Beatitudes, five of them really are about, about our vertical relationship to, to God, and including the first four we looked at already. Those are the poor in spirit and those who mourn over their sin, and those who are meek and those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. The other three are horizontal, including the one we're going to look at as our focal passage today. And Ms. Ella Cruz is going to come and read our passage for us. Would you stand in honor of the reading of God's Word? And let's hear Matthew 5, uh, verses 1, 2, and 7. Go right ahead. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. This is the word of the Lord, which is true and faithful. Amen. Thank you, Ella Cruz. Appreciate that. Thank you. You can be seated. So Matthew 5, 7, where we're going to focus, Blessed are the merciful, they shall receive mercy. This is Jesus's mercy rule. Now, what are we talking about? We're talking about mercy. Let's define it this way today. Mercy is a tender expression of God's compassionate help in words or action to people who are sinning, hurting, or vulnerable. Now, we think about mercy often, we kind of think of it as synonymous with grace, and they're very closely related, but let's think about this. Where grace is God's good and generous response to the undeserving, Mercy is God's good and welcome relief for the consequences of sin or brokenness in, in experience. So what does merciful, a life full to overflowing with mercy, what's merciful living actually look like? Well, as we have with these others, we're going to find a picture of this in the Older Testament. So if you turn with me to 2 Samuel 9. 2 Samuel 9, we're going to look at a, an incident in the life of King David. While you're turning here, let me set the background for you. It begins uh, when Saul is king of Egypt. Now, he was the first king, uh, king, of, king of Israel, Egypt, where I come from. Uh, he is king of Israel, the very first king of Israel. But he repeatedly disobeyed God. And God, so God chose David, this young shepherd and psalm singer, to be the next king. Not long after this, David killed the giant Goliath with the slingshot and the stone. 
But this transfer of leadership did not happen automatically. It happened over a, a long period of time. Now Saul knew that it was David who was going to replace him. And he had a murderous jealousy toward him. So he chased and repeatedly tried to have David killed, kind of with, with, uh, with his version of the SEAL team, take him out. And so for a lot of his life, for a few years, David lived on the run. He hid in caves and was there. But through it all, David had a best friend at court, Saul's son, Jonathan. Prince Jonathan was David's best friend. The first time they met, it said their souls were knit together that way. And so they covenanted with one another. They committed to one another that they would be there for each other, protect each other no matter what came. David promised that he would take care of all of Jonathan's descendants when he became king. And Jonathan promised that he would help David get to be king and be alive for that by telling him what his father Saul was planning. Matter of fact, the last day they saw each other, that's exactly what happened. Jonathan enabled David to escape. So time went by. Saul and Jonathan both die on the battlefield. David becomes king. The nation is united. It's prospering. It's enjoying peace. And then this happens. 2 Samuel 9, beginning in verse 1. And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake. Now remember, we're asking what's, a, what's merciful living look like. Well, notice this, first of all, the merciful disciples joyfully extend to others the mercy received. David says he wants to show kindness. It's a very important word in the Bible is the word chesed or loving kindness, God's promise-keeping kind of love, God's never-failing love. So why does David want to do this? Well, he wants to be a man of integrity. He wants to, to keep his word. But even more than that, uh, David knew what it was to be in trouble, to be under threat, to be, under, uh, uh, be vulnerable, to have someone come to help him. David was only king because God used Jonathan's mercy to get him to the throne. He was only upright and breathing because of mercy. He only had victories because of mercy. He was ruling because of mercy. He had, he had a family and, and children because of mercy. David owed everything he had and everything he was to mercy, just like every one of us who call ourselves Christians. You see, we are created by God to live for His pleasure and His glory, to order our lives by, by His design. And we do that and live with Him, then things are right and good and beautiful and true but all of us sin. We try to design life to make much of us rather than much of God. We're rebels. We commit treason against the, the holy king. And when you commit treason and you do an offense against the ultimate authority, you pay the ultimate penalty. So the sentence for treason against the king is death under the, the fiery wrath of God. Now, you got to understand that's not a threat that's not something that's to kind of get people to do stuff the right thing. That's a certainty. That's a promise. And from that, if without any intervention, there is no negotiation. There is no exit door on our own. If we don't do something to restore our relationship with God, we are in eternal peril. And it is absolutely terrifying to realize that we may come under the fiery wrath of God. But the scripture says this in Ephesians 2, but God being rich in mercy with the great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses made us alive together with Christ by grace you've been saved I love Eugene Peterson's paraphrase of this in the message he says immense in mercy 
And with incredible love, he embraced us. He took our sin-dead lives and made us alive in Christ. He did all this on his own with no help from us. We've already been singing and celebrating this reality this morning of his mercy toward us. The same king against whom we rebelled came searching for us. He took action to relieve the pain of our sin. Jesus, God in the flesh, lived perfectly, died in our place, rose again, so that all who trust him to put them right with God, those who repent of sin or turn away from sin and trust Christ, will be forgiven and cleansed and freed and accepted and adopted and brought home to be with him forever. It's all mercy. It's all mercy that he gives. We were in trouble going down for the last time, and he came to rescue us so we could live. But understand, it's not just about our past entry into the kingdom, not just about our future possibilities in heaven, but even right now, as we're trying to stay true to him and walk with him, and we, we struggle at times, and we mess through, we have access to his presence and his help and life, and so everything we call the Christian life is all mercy. Every breath you take is a mercy from the king. Everything you have is a mercy. Your family, your friends is a mercy. Your job is a mercy. The pillow you slept on last night is a mercy. The clothes you're wearing right now is a mercy. All your experiences and opportunities, that's all mercy. Every simple joy is a mercy. Having any sense of hope when you sit through pain is a mercy. When there's forgiveness, when you blow it from your king, there is mercy. Everything we have and everything we are as Christians, it's all mercy from the king. Every bit of it. So I just got to ask, do, do you have it? Have you stepped into this mercy? Do you know him? Do you, do you have a right relationship with the king? You need the mercy to live this because here's the way he intends this to work. Mercy comes to you and me on the way to somebody else. Listen to what Paul says. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort others who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Mercy comes to us on the way to somebody else. It was never meant to be hoarded by us. It was never meant to be just for show and tell on Sunday morning with other Christians. It was always meant to be given away because Jesus has showered us and continues to shower us with abundant mercy. We have enough to share with others. Merciful people extend the mercy received and express to others the mercy they need. Now, how do we do that? How do we express to them the mercy? Now, let's watch David. The first thing we do is we search out the broken and the vulnerable. David asked a question because he wants to know specifically, is there somebody, not just generically, is there somebody specifically? Tell me, fulfill this promise. Here's the answer beginning in verse 2. There was a servant of the house of Saul, his name was Ziba, and they called him to David. The king said to him, are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? 
And Ziba said to the king, there's still a son of Jonathan, he's crippled in his feet. The king said to him, where is he? And Ziba said to the king, he's in the house of Mekir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. Yeah, there's somebody. Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan. It's a long name, Mephibosheth. Got to wonder if they didn't call him Bo from time to time. You know, be easier. Mephibosheth, Jonathan's son, only five years old when his father died. And we learn, besides his name, we learn three other things about Mephibosheth from this little description, these facts. We learn he was disabled, so he was crippled in his feet. There was an accident when he was a baby. The nation was attacked. His nanny picked him up to carry him, and she fell on the stone steps, and her weight crushed his ankle so he could never walk again. Maybe walk with crutches, but he was never able to serve in the army or hold a job, which made him dependent for other people to provide his needs. Why so I was living with this guy who could care for his needs. But notice he also was distant. He was in Lodabar. Lodabar was on the far eastern frontier border of Israel, very far from the capital city of Jerusalem. Why was he there? Well, traditionally, it was a place where people went for refuge. The practice of kings in those days was to search out any descendants of the previous king and kill them all so there wouldn't be any possible claim to the throne or any possible rebellion that would come from a descendant of the previous king. So Mephibosheth figured, hey, I'm related to the prince and the previous king. He's going to take me out. Let me get as far away as I can. So he's hurting, he's needy, he's vulnerable, and he's in the sphere of King David. He's in need of mercy. This is, this is a matter of simple awareness. It's just look around. Jesus saw the people like sheep without a shepherd, and he was moved with compassion toward them. He saw them. Where in your sphere, in your world, where you go, are the people who are sinful, hurting, vulnerable, in need of God's mercy? You know, it's so easy to laser focus, only see the thing, the task right in front of us. In Jesus' story of the Good Samaritan, there were a couple of religious guys really, really committed to God, but they had place to go and spiritual things to do. And they were so focused, they went right around the hurting guy right in the middle of the road. You and I are passing by people in our workplaces, in our schools, in our neighborhoods every day who are vulnerable, maybe physically, maybe sick or weak and need somebody to help them, maybe financially need something. And you can come along with your strength or your money and you can help and tell them where the generosity came from. But you can press deeper too. There are people who are emotionally vulnerable. They're hungry for encouragement. They're longing for, for companionship. They're lonely or maybe they're, they're walking through fear or failure or, or grief. Maybe they look great from the outside, but, but they're so dissatisfied on the inside. And all of them may also be spiritually vulnerable. Maybe they know the Lord but have forgotten about forgiveness. Or maybe, maybe they're people you really struggle to like because their politics are different than yours. And they have a lifestyle that you know is not approved by God's word. And so you tend to either avoid them or attack them. Have you ever considered the person who most gets your blood boiling around you may be the way they are because they're listening to the story a world has told them that's a lie about the way things actually are. And what they really need to hear is somebody to tell them the true story of Christ and the true story of hope in him. And maybe what they need mostly, the biggest act of mercy would simply be for you to tell them about Jesus.
to what they need. They're vulnerable. They're all around us. When you see that, the next thing is you want to start the mercy process immediately. Verse 5 says, David sent for uh, messengers to Lodavar to bring Mephibosheth back to Jerusalem. When he knew he had an opportunity for mercy, he acted. Understand, most of the time, our awareness of someone else's need for mercy is our calling to be the agent of that mercy to them. You don't have to understand everything. You don't have to have a completed nine-bullet point completed strategic plan with all contingencies to help out and give mercy. You, you don't uh, have to wait for approval from a pastor or for the church to figure out a ministry plan for how we're going to get to people and show them mercy. We've already got one of those plans. It's you. <laughs> Wherever you are, where you live, work, learn, and play. It's how we operate with those things. We have been given Jesus' eyes to see needs and his ears to hear their cries and his heart to feel empathy and his strength when we feel overwhelmed by it. But he specifically placed you and me at certain times and certain moments where you and I are to help mercy come alive to them for someone in your world. What's that look like? Watch this picture. This mom comes home. Her daughter called her having an anxiety attack. When the mom pulled in, her daughter was lying in the middle of their driveway, paralyzed with anxiety in the pouring down rain. The mom was out of her car. She walks over. She lays down next to her. She grabs her hand and just lays there in the rain until the anxiety passes. That is mercy. That is empathy. You can do that. You can come and you can help in the middle of that. And as we start that, we also want to shield those needy people from fear or guilt or shame. What do you think our friend Bo's thinking on that chariot ride back to Jerusalem? <laughs> oh, this is it. It's coming pretty soon. He arrives. He's ushered into the presence of the king. And verse 6 tells us that he came in and he fell on his face and paid homage to the king. Now, bowing was an act of honor. But I also suspect maybe his legs were shaking so hard he couldn't stand up anymore and just collapsed, sprawled in front of the king. And David, his response to me, he calls him by name, Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth says, I'm your servant. There's no threat here. Maybe David heard something in his voice because in verse 7, Hear the tenderness there when he says, oh, don't, don't be afraid. I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father. You shall eat at my table always. I'm, I'm leaning in with kindness. I mean to do you good, not, not harm. Mephibosheth is so overwhelmed and stunned by that. Responds back, verse 8, and he, he says, who am I? that you should treat a dead dog like me. I'm just roadkill. How could you possibly treat me like this? You get a sense of his own self-image, of his own worth in that moment. Would you remember that showing mercy to a hurting, needy, vulnerable person is a profound act of respect for them? Because that person no matter their circumstances or their background or their attitude or their spiritual condition or their church involvement or their political beliefs or their sinful choices, that person is a wonder. 
fearfully and wonderfully made by God in his image with a purpose, one for whom Jesus died. They're not just their issue. They're not just an issue. They're not just a drunk or an addict or depressed or a widow or adulterer or, or anxious or poor or a left-wing liberal nut job or immoral or unchurched. They have a name. They have a name that identifies them as precious to him. It's not ours to render verdict on any aspects of any life. That's reserved for God. Remember, we're only there because of his mercy in our mess. And we get to tell them that there's mercy for their mess too. This is Jesus who loves them and that he will be there. They're falling to pieces. Here's Jesus. He's the healer. He'll make you whole. Are you ashamed? You just want to hide? Look, he's the light. He'll bring you life. Do you feel guilty? His bloody cross is big enough to wash away any failure. Are you terrified and afraid? There's an empty tomb that shows he's stronger than any threat the earth might bring. And what we get to say is, as long as you're breathing, your story's not over and the gospel still has hope because King Jesus gets the final word. That's the reality. That's who Christ is. That's what he does and how he comes. So we shield them. Then in that moment, you get to share your God-given resources. See verse 7? He said, you'll eat at the king's table. Lots of people ate at the king's table. But you had to come only by invitation. Listen, you don't need a king's level of income or a royal residence to show mercy to others. God provides everything to meet your needs and also to enable you to be a part of what he wants to do by mercy in the world. Yes, there's your regular stewardship, giving your tithes and offerings to, to this local church if this is your church home. But then he also provides enough for those mercy appointments he's going to arrange. Look what it says. God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times me abound in every good work. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way. What do you already have that can be a vehicle for mercy? Remember the good Samaritan? He came along and says he bandaged his wounds and poured in wine and oil. Did he have bandages? Maybe not, but he had a shirt, stripped it off. The wine, it was a housewarming gift. The oil may have been on the grocery list from his wife. <laughs> he had a horse, got him to the inn. What, what, what do you have? You got a house? You got an apartment? Do you have a car? You got some food in your freezer? You got a rake? You got some trash bags? You got a little money you set aside for something else? But beyond that, beyond that, you can listen with genuine concern and it costs nothing but time. So can I pray for you? Pretty simple. Or you can tell somebody the story of how Jesus met you in your mess to remind them that there's mercy for their failure no matter how far it has gone. And they never fail beyond Jesus, so they see him as good. We have all we need to give mercy to the hurting. And as we do that, we'll make sure, like David, that we also stay engaged 
until the life change comes. My favorite part of the story is the end. Beginning in verse 9. The king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belong to Saul and to all his house I've given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and bring in the produce, that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. And Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. And Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord the king commands his servants, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a young son. His name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he always ate at the king's table. This was not a one-time drive-by mercy. David arranged for, Micah, for Mephibosheth to regain his place in society. He's no longer an outcast, no longer a suspect. He gave him an income, a job with responsibilities, and a managed land and staff. But the whole pattern of his life changed. Did you notice the repeated refrain three separate times? Verse 10, it says, uh, he shall always eat at my table. Verse 11, he always ate at the king's table like one of the king's sons. Verse 13, it comes back, he always ate at the king's table. This was not just about his bank account. Not just about changing his reputation. It didn't even change his circumstances. Look at the very last line. It says, and Mephibosheth was, was lame in both his feet. Didn't change that. But his whole identity was transformed from the inside out. He was no longer disabled or dependent or distant, but he was the one spiritually who now is the one who eats at the king's table. That's who he was. It changed him. Kingdom people live like this, searching, bringing over and over, staying in, full of mercy. This is how he means us to go through the world. Prophet Micah said this. He said, he has shown you, O man, what is good. What's the Lord require of you? To act justly, love mercy, walk humbly with your God. Over time, mercy that fills us, spills out, and is transformative. Merciful lives change lives one at a time. So extend the mercy we receive and we express the mercy they need so that together we can enjoy with others the mercy released. Now we're back to Matthew 5, the last part. Let's read this verse together, Matthew 5. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Now here's how I don't want you to read that. This is not a quid pro quo. This is not a do this, get that. You need to be merciful so that when you mess up, you'll get mercy. Not the way this works, not the way the gospel works in that way. No, this is the idea that as more of God's kingdom people express God's mercy in the broken and failing moments in their marriages, in their families, in their relationships, in their work, in community, in, in circumstances, in politics, in social media, the atmosphere we live in will change to mercy. Did you notice this is future tense? Blessed are the merciful, mercy given today. Remember what mercy is? A, a tender expression of, of God's com, uh, compassion and help in words or action to people who are sinning or hurting or are vulnerable. That right now sets the expectation for mercy in future circumstances. Why? Because mercy changes the way the world works. Now listen, guys, y'all know this. 
the world we're living in right now is so hard. It is so hurtful. It is so harsh. It is so hateful. There's so much in the world that says, just get yours and crunch everybody else on the way. And if somebody offends you, you punch them back. Make sure, take them out. Mercy changes the world. Remember the promise? We love this one. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Here's what's astonishing. You and I will never in our own lives or in the world around us have a moment of failure or sin or hurt or brokenness or confusion or vulnerability for which there will be insufficient mercy from our God. There will always be enough. How is that possible? There's so much mess. How is it possible? Because the gospel is bigger than we've imagined. And our king and his omnipotence is more powerful than we thought. And yes, he could, he could privately mercy us in that way. But it seems his plan is for mercies to come to people through his people. Mercies come to the world. So mercy leads us and surrounds us and chases us all the way home. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. So every step we're receiving mercy in our own failures, in our sins, and our brokenness. Every step we're giving away mercy, sins and failures and brokenness, and it spills over. Another story, Japanese story of the man who was going to get water from the spring. He would go up the mountain every day and he had one of those bars across with the buckets on either side. Go up the spring and he would fill with the water and come back down to his, to his garden. And he got so frustrated because his buckets were old and cracked. And after he'd get frustrated because he'd get home and have less water than he had at the top. But then he began to notice that there were flowers growing on either side of the path. As he carried and the water spilled out of the cracks, it was watering seeds and something beautiful grew there. That's what merciful lives do. God's mercy poured into us, spills out, and something beautiful grows in a place that is hard and harsh and hopeless. So yep, Jesus has a mercy rule. It's the way the kingdom works. This morning, some of you are here and you, you sense your life is dead to God. You've never gotten things right in that relationship with him. There's mercy for that. Would you right now turn from your sin and trust Christ alone? His arms are open. He will welcome you. Are you here this morning and, and your, your heart is the one that's cracked and broken? Are you scared? Are you helpless? Are you hurting? Are you confused? There's mercy for that. In the moment as we worship together, our care leaders will be here. You can come and kneel here and pray with someone or just talk to Jesus. Do you know somebody who needs mercy? Maybe the spouse or the child you bickered with on the way here today. <laughs> Maybe that person you really don't like very much. You try to avoid them. How could you take one step of mercy toward them? Might change the relationship, might change you. See, I want you to imagine a world where our homes and our workplaces and our social media feeds and our political conversations 
and our community engagement and our social life. Yes, our churches, every place where there are people, every place where sin infects and hurt comes are all dripping with God's mercy because God's kingdom people are there. If you'll imagine that, you can pray with me. Lord, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You can pray, Lord, have mercy. So we'll be filled with mercy so we can give away mercy so the world will become beautiful with mercy. Lord, would you do your work in us now? as we remind ourselves again of how big your mercy really is, would you, Lord Jesus, help us to respond and run into your open arms, we pray in the mighty name of Jesus.